Welcome to the Corona of Thorns podcast. I'm Father Peter Zwans, and today is the third Sunday of Lent. Let's pray. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray. O God, author of every mercy and of all goodness, who in fasting, prayer, and almsgiving have shown us a remedy for sin. Look graciously on this confession of our lowliness, that we who are bowed down by our conscience may always be lifted up by your mercy. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, God, forever and ever. Amen. A reading from the book of Exodus. God spoke all these words. He said, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no gods except for me. You shall not make yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything in heaven or on earth beneath or in the waters under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, and I punish the father's fault in the sons, the grandsons, and the great-grandsons of those who hate me. But I show my kindness to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not utter the name of the Lord your God to misuse it, for the Lord will not leave unpunished the man who utters his name to misuse it. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. For six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath for the Lord your God. You shall do no work that day, neither you nor your son nor your daughter nor your servants, men or women, nor your animals, nor the stranger who lives with you. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea, and all that these hold. But on the seventh day he rested. That is why the Lord has blessed the Sabbath day and made it sacred. Honour your father and your mother, so that you may have a long life in the land that the Lord your God has given to you. You shall not kill, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbour. You shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his servant, man or woman, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is his. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Lord, you have the words of everlasting life. Lord, you have the words of everlasting life. The law of the Lord is perfect. It revives the soul. The rule of the Lord is to be trusted. It gives wisdom to the simple. Lord, you have the words of everlasting life. The precepts of the Lord are right. They gladden the heart. The command of the Lord is clear. It gives light to the eyes. Lord, you have the words of everlasting life. The fear of the Lord is holy, abiding forever. The decrees of the Lord are truth, and all of them just. Lord, you have the words of everlasting life. They are more to be desired than gold, 
than the purest of gold, and sweeter are they than honey, than honey from the comb. Lord, you have the words of everlasting life. A reading from the first letter of St. Paul to the Corinthians. While the Jews demand miracles and the Greeks look for wisdom, here are we preaching a crucified Christ. To the Jews, an obstacle that they cannot get over. To the pagans' madness, but to those who have been called, whether they are Jews or Greeks, a Christ who is the power and the wisdom of God. For God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom, and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. The Word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ, King of endless glory. God loved the world so much, he gave us his only Son, that all who believe in him might have eternal life. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ, King of endless glory. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to John. Glory to you, O Lord. Just before the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And in the temple, he found people selling cattle and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting at their counters there. Making a whip out of some cord, he drove them all out of the temple, cattle and sheep as well, scattered the money changers' coins, knocked their tables over, and said to the pigeon sellers, Take all this out of here and stop turning my father's house into a market. Then his disciples remembered the words of Scripture, Zeal for your house will devour me. The Jews intervened and said, What sign can you show us to justify what you have done? Jesus answered, Destroy this sanctuary, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews replied, It has taken 46 years to build this sanctuary. Are you going to raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the sanctuary that was his body. And when Jesus rose from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the words he had said. During his stay in Jerusalem for the Passover, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he gave. But Jesus knew them all and did not trust himself to them. He never needed evidence about any man. He could tell what a man had in him. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. You know, it's funny, when I was a kid... I never learnt the Ten Commandments. Uh, I suppose that's not a terribly uncommon experience these days. I mean, most of the kids, you know, who go to school these days barely have to learn anything, really. (laughs) Don't have to memorise terribly much. Um, Actually, this was a little bit cheeky, um, but I I quizzed some of the teachers in Catholic schools about whether or not they knew the Ten Commandments, and I just got blank stares back at me. I don't know. I'm not game to ask the uh, parishioners on a Sunday how many people know the Ten Commandments, but um, I'm guessing it's probably pretty low. Because, I mean, that was the case for me for the longest time. I actually had to stop, pause, and go out and learn them and do it on purpose. 
I suppose the Ten Commandments have gone a little bit out of fashion too. So we should probably do a little crash course maybe. So we hear that the Ten Commandments came down from Mount Sinai on two tablets. Uh, And so commonly the Ten Commandments are divided into two. The first tablet containing the commandments that refer to our relationship with God. And the second tablet referring to our relationship with other human beings. So, you know, more often than not, our attention falls on the second tablet on, you know, honour thy father and thy mother, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal and all that. But in many ways, our first focus really ought to be on the first tablet, on the tablet that speaks about our relationship with God. Because if we love God right, then everything else in the terms of the ways that we treat our neighbours kind of falls into place. So let's look at the first commandment for a minute. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no gods except me. Now, we might not often think that this is one of the commandments that we need to dedicate terribly much attention to. After all, you know, I suspect that for many of us, our family has, at least in name, worshipped the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob for many generations. So, you know, it would seem that this commandment's a bit redundant, that it loses its relevance in a predominantly Christian culture. Well, it might be that there's more to this commandment than what seems immediately evident by the words. Here's what it's getting at. We might well ask ourselves, what is it that I worship? When I'm being truly honest with myself, what do I hold as my highest value. You see, we'll trade, we'll wheel and deal with things that are of lesser value in order to obtain something that's greater. So, what am I willing to give everything else up for? Is it God? Or perhaps it's power, or health, wealth, reputation, sexuality, my own ego, my own opinion, my career, my culture, my country. All of these things from the time of Moses down have functioned as false gods to us. For many of us, these things have become idols, you know, the kind of focus of our worship, that which is most valuable. So the first thing that the Ten Commandments tells us is this. If you want to be happy, the very first thing you need to do is to stop worshipping false gods. It's a very important insight into the human condition and the human heart. We can be divided in our lives and be content with the contradiction. We may be happy to profess the Lord to be our one true God with our lips, but that profession may be entirely irrelevant on Monday through Saturday. We can delude ourselves into thinking that, you know, everything's okay as long as the externals are in order and I'm saying the right thing. Well, the first commandment is pointing out otherwise. In order to be happy... In order to live in right relationship with God, we need to have no other gods. That means the one we worship, the highest value in life, is Him. I am the Lord your God. I am the one who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no gods except me. That means He takes the highest place. If we want to be happy... We need to love God more than power, more than wealth, more than country, more than culture, 
more than my own ego, more than my own health, even staggeringly, more than my own family. Now, let's be clear, like, these things are all good, but none of these things are God. And none of these things are ultimately worthy of our worship because none of these things are God. At the end of the day, none of these things can rescue us from the land of slavery. Now, I think the somewhat surprising thing that we see from the first tablet of the law, you know, when we add up the first commandment to worship God alone, uh, with the third commandment to keep the Sabbath day holy, is that, you know what? It turns out worship is really central. If we don't worship God, if we don't keep the Sabbath day holy, then, you know, God's going to lose his principal place in our lives and something else is going to take its place. We need to worship. And we're going to start to worship ourselves or our own comfort or our own wealth if God isn't at the middle. And it's something that needs to be active. We need to go out and we need to pray. We need to keep him as the first in our hearts and in our lives. Otherwise, our hearts grow cold and something else is going to slot right in. We're going to lose our equilibrium and the idols become the object of our affection. Again, these things aren't bad in themselves, but they're not God. And they become bad when we pretend that they are. So when we go forward to the account of Jesus cleansing the temple, um, we get St. John's account, right? And we can see Christ entering into this dynamic of the first tablet of the Ten Commandments. With the Passover approaching, Jesus, he goes into the temple in Jerusalem. And take note, the temple is where the first tablet of the Ten Commandments should have been honoured the most. The place of Israel's definitive act of worship. The place where there ought to be no idols at all. But he finds a marketplace instead of a house of prayer. Who's receiving the worship of the temple? Clearly not God. The place par excellence where God should have been worshipped, where we would have no other gods before him, was surely the temple. And here we see idols, money, and power. These take the pride of place, being the object of worship. So what does Jesus do? <laughs> I tell you what, if you ever thought that Jesus was always meek and mild, a nice guy, woof, get a load of this. He overturns the order. He drives out the money lenders, seeking to restore God's proper place as the focus of the temple. Okay. Now, let me pull in a little bit of St. Paul here. In the first letter to the Corinthians, he reminds us that our body is a temple. Now, what does that mean? Remember, the temple in Jerusalem, it was the dwelling place of God, the central place of worship. Well, St. Paul reminds us that we have received the gift of the Holy Spirit at our baptism and therefore, we have become the dwelling place of God. Our bodies are the principal place of worship. And so our lives 
need to be ordered toward the worship of God. And so what we're starting to uncover here is the deep reality of human life. The human person finds happiness and integration in the measure in which God finds the first place in our lives. To have no other idols, but only to offer true worship to God. Once God is in his rightful place at the center of our lives, everything else starts to fall into its proper place. If our body is a temple, just like the temple in Jerusalem, then in coming to us, Christ should discover a house of prayer. That in our lives, God holds the principal position, that there are no graven images in our temple, no idols before God, and the Sabbath is held holy. It might be helpful for us to meditate on Christ coming to each one of us, to our bodies as the temple of the Holy Spirit. And Christ comes expecting to find a house of prayer. So what in my life needs to be overturned? What idols does Christ need to drive out of the temple so that my attention might be fully on God, that my worship would be of him alone? My life should be a house of prayer. But what other rival gods have invaded the temple? Well, for us human beings, it's typically one of four things, or a combination of the four. Wealth, power, pleasure, and honour. If we're honest, what places do these things take within the temple of our hearts? Within the temple where God should find worship. If Christ comes into our hearts expecting to find a house of prayer, what in reality does he find? Well, this is what Lent is for. On Ash Wednesday, we hear the words, repent and believe in the gospel. Well, this is exactly what we need to do during this season, to allow Christ to come in and to do a little rearranging in our hearts to allow the commandments to touch us once again. But especially that first tablet, where we recall that for human happiness and integration, we need to have God in the first place, to have no other idols before him and to keep the Sabbath day holy. Because nothing else will save us. Nothing else is worthy of our worship. Nothing else is worth our whole lives. So... This is the season where we invite Christ to come and to overturn the temples of our hearts and to restore them as the temples of the Holy Spirit, as houses of prayer. We find then that Jesus isn't shy. And sometimes he's not exactly gentle either. But that's okay. Because the purifying of the temple of our bodies, whilst it can be painful... And it can be quite humbling too, as, you know, the Jews in the gospel find out. But the Lord has not come to destroy the temple. Instead, in only a short time, in only three days, he will raise it up. Thanks for praying with us. And may God bless you abundantly, so that this day may give glory to God the Father.